Well, I hope whenever you're watching this, you're having uh, a safe day, a healthy day. Uh, you're feeling good, and uh, I hope it's good wherever, wherever, whenever you're at. Uh, and I hope that uh, that wherever you are today, uh, you're ready to dig into God's word. Um, whether you know it t- or not, today is Palm Sunday. It's the week before Easter. Um, so that's where I want to start today as we continue our series on becoming the bride, becoming the church that God has designed us to be and living it out in our everyday lives. So we're going to start today in Mark chapter 11, and we're going to be reading verses 1 to 21. Actually, excuse me, verse, starting at verse 7. And it says, they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments over it, and he sat on it. Many in the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others spread leafy palm branches as they had cut in the fields. Jesus was in the center of the procession, and the people around him were shouting, Praise God! Blessing on the one who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessings on the kingdom of our ancestor David! Praise God in the highest heaven! So Jesus came to Jerusalem and went into the temple. After looking around carefully at everything, he left because it was late in the afternoon. And then he returned to Bethany with the 12 disciples. Now, as I was reading this, verse 11 just kind of struck me as sort of as funny. That Jesus rode into town. He came from Bethany, went into town, rode in, went into the temple, looked around, and was like, nope, I'm out. He, he, he walked in, he looked around, he's like, Oh, wow, look at, look at, look at the, it's getting late, guys. It's, uh, never mind, let's go home. And I can ma- imagine the disciples looking at each other like, what? Is it, like, like he, Jesus, it says he walked into the temple, he looked around, then left, because it was late afternoon. But then you read what happens next, and you see, maybe begin to see why Jesus went into the temple, looked around, and was like, nope, and walked out. It says the next morning, As they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. He noticed a fig tree in full leaf a little way off, so he went over to see if he could find any figs. But there were only leaves because it was too early in the season for fruit. Then Jesus said to the tree, May no one ever eat your fruit again. And the disciples heard him say it. We'll get back to that in a few minutes. When they arrived back to Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out people buying and selling animals for sacrifices. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. He stopped everyone from using the temple as a marketplace. He said to them, the scriptures declare my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. And I think that maybe helps explain the day before a little bit. That Jesus walks in, sees everything, and is like, you know what, it's late in the day. I'm not going to deal with this right now. And he goes home. But I think Jesus maybe went home and it kind of bugged him what he saw. And I I bet it's bugging him on the way back to Mary and Martha and Lazarus's house. And I think he's sitting there that night and it's still bothering him what he saw in the temple. And he woke up in the morning and he was still kind of angry about it. And still kind of angry about it on his way back to the temple the next morning. And he just kept thinking about it all night long. 
I don't know if you've ever had that happen where something happens and you just are thinking about it. And the longer you think about it, the angrier you get. But I think that's kind of what's happening with Jesus. And it's a righteous anger. It's, a, it's, a, it's an anger that is right because Jesus' temple is being used for the wrong things. It's being made a mockery. And so the next morning, Jesus isn't particularly in a good mood when he goes to the fig tree to find some fruit and there's nothing there and he curses the fig tree. And then he goes in and he starts yelling and knocking over tables and breaking microphones. That, that last part's me. But, but he clears out the temple. And in verse 18, it says, when the leading priests and teachers of the law heard what Jesus had done, they began planning on how to kill him. But they were afraid of him because the people were so amazed at his teaching. That evening, Jesus and the disciples left the city. The next morning, they passed by the fig tree that he had cursed, and the disciples noticed it had withered from the roots up. Peter remembered what had, he had said to the fig tree on the previous day and exclaimed, Look, Rabbi, the fig tree you cursed withered and died. And so that's the story that I've been thinking about. And, and that story of Jesus clearing out the temple. But you know, it wasn't the first time Jesus cleared out the temple. Jesus had cleared out the temple one other time before that. But there's another story. And, and this one, Mike Budzik pointed out to me uh, a couple weeks ago uh, that I've been thinking about. And it starts in 2 Chronicles 29. But I want to read a little bit of 28 to give you some background on it. And then in chapter 29, though, you read about a king named Hezekiah. But in chapter 28, you read about Hezekiah's father, Ahaz. And Ahaz is having a hard time. Ahaz hasn't been following God. And because he hasn't been following God, because he's been doing all these evil things, because he's been setting up uh, idols, God has brought hard times on the land. So this is 2 Chronicles 28. 22 to 25. This is about Ahaz. It says, In his time of trouble, King Ahaz became even more unfaithful to the Lord. He offered sacrifices to the gods of Damascus who defeated him. For he thought, since the gods of kings of Aram have helped them, I will sacrifice to them so they help me. But they were his downfall and the downfall of all of Israel. Ahaz gathered together the furnishings from the temple of God and cut them in pieces. He shut the doors of God's temple and set up altars at every street corner in Jerusalem. In every town in Judah, he built high places to burn sacrifices to other gods and arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of his ancestors. So a time of trouble comes. I don't know if you know anything about that. And it causes Ahaz to become even more unfaithful. And so he does all of these crazy things. He sets up all these places of worship, all these other gods. But then Ahaz eventually dies and his son Hezekiah becomes king. And this is Second Chronicles chapter 29 verses 1 through 10. It says, Hezekiah was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother's name was Abihad, daughter of Zechariah. 
He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his ancestor, his father David had done. In the first month of the year of his reign, he opened up the doors of the temple and repaired them. He brought the priests and the Levites and assembled them in the square on the east side and said, listen to me, Levites, consecrate, that means set apart, make holy, yourself, and consecrate the temple of the Lord, the God of your ancestors. Remove all the defilement from the sanctuary. Our parents were unfaithful. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord our God and forsook him. They took their faces away from the Lord's dwelling place and turned their backs on him. They also shut the doors of the portico and put out the lamps. They did not burn incense or present any burnt offerings at the sanctuary to the God of Israel. Therefore, the anger of the Lord has fallen on Judah and Jerusalem. He has made them an object of dread and horror and scorn, as you can see with your own eyes. This is why our fathers have fallen by the sword and why our sons and daughters and wives are in captivity. Now I intend to make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel, so that his fierce anger will turn away from us. And then if you jump down to 15 and 16, it says, when they assembled their fellow Levites and consecrated themselves, they went in to purify the temple of the Lord as the king had ordered and followed the word of the Lord. The priest went into the sanctuary of the Lord to purify it. They brought out to the courtyard of the Lord's temple everything unclean that they found in the temple of the Lord. The Levites took it and carried it out to the Kidron Valley. And then in 2 Chronicles Chapter 30, verse 6 to 8, it says that the king's command couriers went throughout Israel and Judah with letters from the king and his officials, which read, People of Israel, return to the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that he may return to you who are left, who have escaped from the hand of the kings of Assyria. Do not be like your parents and your fellow Israelites who were unfaithful to the Lord, the God of their ancestors, so he, that he made them an object of horror as you see. Do not be stiff-necked as your ancestors were. Submit to the Lord. Come into his sanctuary, which he has consecrated forever. Serve the Lord your God so that his fierce anger will turn away from you. So Ahaz had set up idols. Ahaz had other gods. It says that he set up altars on every street corner. It says that everything in the temple had become defiled. Defiled means desecrated or made unclean, dirty, spoiled, no longer holy, no longer good. And so his son went in and cleaned out all that had been defiled. And today, this Palm Sunday, I believe that God wants to clean out the temple again. Today, is, I think God is calling you to search your own heart and do the hard work of Hezekiah and to clean out the temple. And, and I'm, not saying, I'm not saying that we're having a church cleaning day. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that we need to have our hearts cleaned out. If anything this virus has done, it has exposed the fact that we place far too much importance on other things. In the span of just a few weeks, God has taken away so many of our idols that we live with every day, that are on every street corner of our lives, every street corner of our cities, every street corner of our souls. 
Sports are gone. Movies are gone. Businesses are gone. Busyness is gone. Your kids' sports, your kids' busyness is gone. Entertainment, a lot of it is gone. A lot of money is gone. A lot of jobs are gone. A lot of education is gone. A lot, uh, being able to spend time with family and friends has been taken away in, in some sense. A lot of the things that we idolize, a lot of the things that we raise up in our lives to the importance of God, God has taken away. All of these things that, that in most of our everyday lives, we put a higher priority on than God. About the only thing we haven't lost yet is the TV and internet. But can you, can you imagine what would happen if the internet went down right now? If we didn't have the internet and we were still had to like stay in our houses with COVID-19 going on? I mean this in every literal sense. The world would completely lose its mind. The world would come apart. What would you do if, the, if next week the internet wasn't available and we weren't allowed to meet together? Would that completely crash your Christian walk? What is it that you feel like you miss right now because of all of this? Could it be that you hold those things too high in your life? That if you're missing it right now, you know, you still have the word, you still can pray, you can still have as much time with Jesus as you want, but, but if, if your life is feeling empty right now, less than right now, is it possible that those things are maybe a little bit too close to God? Do you need more than that? Do you need more than him? Some of you feel like you can't pray, you can't worship, you can't learn from the word as well right now without a church building to do it in. Maybe the church building has become a little bit of an idol. I wonder how many Christians aren't really growing in their faith because the building is closed. Because that is not healthy. That is not Christianity. I think God is knocking down idols all around us. All of the things that we hold and that, that take up more time in our life than he does. And he's saying, I'm this is gone, this is gone. It's time to get back to me. The Bible says that our God is a jealous God, that he will not be shared with anything or anyone, that there shouldn't be anything that comes close to importance of him in our lives. And yet, one of the things that this has showed me and that I think it's showing everyone is that we have an awful lot that has come way too close to God in our lives. It's time for us, church, to do the work of asking and praying what David prayed. Psalm 139, search me, O God, know me, O heart, my heart. 
test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And I think this is a time of discipline from the Lord. I think he's trying to help us become the bride. And nobody likes discipline, Hebrews says, when it happens, but, but it makes us stronger. It, makes us, it helps us become who we're supposed to be. It helps us become the bride. And, you know, when Mike was telling me about the Second Chronicles passage in Hezekiah opening up the temple and, and clearing it out and, and uh, restoring it, it there was a, a sentence in that passage that stood out to me, that just jumped out, out off the page to me, where it says, they removed all defilement from the sanctuary. They removed all defilement, that which defiles, that which makes it dirty, unclean, unholy. And I had remembered in my, that there's a, a scripture passage in the New Testament where Jesus talks about that which defiles. I couldn't remember exactly what the passage was, where it was found, but I, I remembered that Jesus talked about that which defiles. So I, I looked it up. And you find it in Mark chapter 7, starting at verse 1. Now, maybe that just rings a little bit of a bell for you, maybe not. But, but this is what Mark chapter 7, starting at verse 1, says. One day, some Pharisees and teachers of religious law arrived from Jerusalem to see Jesus. They noticed that some of his disciples failed to follow the Jewish ritual of hand-washing before eating. The Jews, especially the Pharisees, did not eat unless they poured water over their cupped hands as required by their ancient traditions. Similarly, they, similarly, they don't eat anything from the market unless they immerse their hands in water. This is but one of many traditions that they have clung to. Hey, that sounds familiar. I think I read that somewhere. Yeah, I, I preached on that message two weeks ago. That, that which defiles took me right back to Mark chapter 7 where Jesus says to the Pharisees in verse 6, you hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, for he wrote, these people, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They, their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. You ignore God's law and substitute your own tradition. It's just funny that God brought us back to that point. And after Jesus is done berating the, the Pharisees uh, for, for taking their traditions and making them as important as the commands of God, basically saying what you've done is you've idolized your tradition rather than followed the, my commands. Right after that, we, we didn't get to this part in that passage. It starts in verse 14. It says that Jesus called the crowd to come and hear. All of you listen, he said, and try to understand. It's not what goes into a person's body that defiles you. You are defiled by what comes from your heart. Can't you see that the food you put into your body can't defile you? 
Food doesn't go into your heart, but it only passes through the stomach and then goes into the sewer. And by saying this, he was declaring that every kind of food is acceptable in God's eyes, which goes back to the tradition thing that we talked about a couple weeks ago. And then he said, it is what comes from inside that defiles you. For from within, out of a person's heart, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, which Jesus said is, if you hold on to anger at somebody, uh, adultery, which God said, if you look at somebody lustfully, you're already committed adultery in your heart, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All of these vile things come from within. They are what defile you. That it's not the things out here that are what get defiled and what you have to undefile and clean up and get better and open up the doors. It's what's in here. It's those things that Jesus listed. The, the, the things that are in our heart that defile us. The things that are in our heart that make us unholy, unclean, that make us raw, make a, that, that separate us from God. We talked about this previously. You are the temple. It's over and over and over again in the New Testament. God did away with the old one when Jesus died and he split the curtain in two. Otherwise, we'd still be making sacrifices like they did in the Old Testament. You are the temple. And God is sending us a message in this time. It is time to clean the temple out. Because we have built way too many idols. Because we have defiled ourselves. You want to know where to start in your life? You want to know where to start looking? Start with the stuff cleaning and cleaning out the stuff that Jesus says defiles. Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. I challenge you, take those verses later and work through those slowly with prayer and just say, search me, O God, know if there's any offensive way in me. Start there. You know, Jesus said, that by your, by your fruit, you will recognize them. What does your fruit look like? Does it look like people that are making disciples and living out the commands of God? Does it look like the fruit of the Spirit? Or does it look like evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, foolishness? What does your fruit look like? In Matthew chapter 7, in verse 17 to 20, Jesus says this, Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Every tree that doesn't bear good fruit will be thrown into the fire. You, do you, you remember the fig tree that we talked about just a few minutes ago? Why did Jesus curse it? Why, why did that tree wither and die? 
because it had no fruit. In verse 13, this is, this is uh, back in, in uh, Mark 11. It says, he noticed the fig tree full leaf a little way off. So he went to see it if he could find any figs, but there were only leaves because it was too early in the season for fruit. And Jesus said, may no one ever eat your fruit again. The reason that he cursed the fig tree because there was no fruit in it. And where was Jesus going when he cursed the fig tree that had no fruit in it? He was going to a temple that had no fruit in it. He was going to the temple and he was going to go clear it out because it had become a mockery of what it was supposed to be. But what about us? What about his church, his bride? What about us? Have we become a mockery? Would he say of us what Isaiah said that they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me? Is our fruit look like the fruit of somebody who follows? He's going, he cursed the fig tree with no fruit. He went to a temple that had no fruit. So my question today, church, is what kind of fruit do we have? Or have we become a mockery of what we were supposed to be? Is it time to clean out the temple? Are we what Jesus meant for us to be? Because Jesus said for us, for his followers, to go into the world and do what? Matthew 28, 18, or 19 and 20. It says, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Are you doing that? I, I'm not asking if the church that you belong to is doing that. I'm asking, are you doing that? Right now. Are you making disciples? Because if you're not, you're wrong. If you're not, you're not following. Are we, as the church, making disciples? And I'm not talking about praying a prayer with someone and then saying, okay, now that you've prayed the prayer, go to church. Or in this case, watch online. I'm saying, who you are, or, or I'm saying, who are you right now pouring into? Who are you right now helping learn the word, praying with, and showing how to live like Christ and obey his teaching? Who are you doing that to right now? And I know what some of you are saying. Some of you are thinking, well, I disciple my kids. I I'm discipling my grandkids. I'm telling you right now, that's a cop-out. It's lazy Christianity. 
The only disciples you're making are your kids. It's not the disciple-making Jesus was talking about. And really, you're doing a poor job of discipling your kids because your kids aren't seeing you discipling anybody. If you want to disciple your kids well, let them watch you disciple someone. Let your kids learn from you as they watch you pour scripture into people, pray for people, come alongside people, encourage people, teach them to obey everything Christ commanded. Let, let your kids be your apprentice in all of this. By the way, what have your kids been learning? What have they learned and seen as how to live like a Christian from you since they haven't been able to come to church? How have they grown since we haven't been in church? Look, all I'm saying is that if the people that Jesus told go and make disciples of all nations just went home and discipled their kids, we wouldn't have a New Testament. And if we did, we'd be reading all about what maybe Peter's kids did, not what Peter did. Who are you reaching out to right now? Who are you ministering to right now? Who are you going to right now? I was just on a call with some of the district people and they said one of the fears is that we're still being the church that's saying, come to us. Instead of saying, coming to, hey, come to the building, we're saying, hey, go watch this church service online. Hey, go see this online. Instead of us going to them. Who are you going to right now? How are you going to make disciples and be witnesses and share the good news? How are you following the command of Jesus to go make disciples? Because if we're not doing that, we're like the temple that Jesus cleared out. We're just sort of a mockery, a fruitless thing that's not really what Jesus wanted us to be. And you might be thinking right now, because I've thought it, like, I don't have the church building now, so what should I do? But, you know, all throughout history, the church has had to find new ways to do things. In the New Testament, they couldn't meet in the temple anymore, so they figured out something different. When you can't go one way, you got to find another. And we're still doing this today. The church has done it every generation since then. We do that with our missions right now, that if you can't go to a country just strictly as a missionary, you go in marketplace ministry. So you go as a businessman or a doctor or a nurse or a teacher, and you go and you go as that profession, but you also go carrying the gospel. We, for years, we've had to find new ways to take the gospel and make disciples. And now, because of all of this, church, it's our turn to do that. I mean, how many times do you see Jesus doing ministry inside the temple? I'll tell you, it's not much. 
You see him teaching in the temple a lot, which makes sense because he said mainly he came for the Jews first and then the Gentile, but he was, came to preach the good news to the Jews. So him teaching there a lot made sense, but, but how often do you see him doing ministry there? I was curious, so I looked it up. In all the New Testament, you only see Jesus doing something besides teaching in the temple four times. Four times. Two of those times, he heals somebody. And one of those two times, he heals somebody sort of as a teaching tool to help get across the point that he was making. The other two times is when he's clearing out the temple. Maybe we need to take a hint. Almost all of Jesus' ministry is done outside the building. 98% of it is done out in the world with people who need it. And it's time for the people of God to repent because a majority of us aren't doing that. Almost all of Jesus' ministry was out on the road, uh, along the way, among the people. And yet the temple was still open every day. But where was Jesus ministering? If you are not out there in one way, shape, or form, every day sharing the, the love of Christ, whether through word or through deed, you're not following Jesus very well and you need to repent. And if you're saying, well, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't do that right now. I can't be around people. Don't you listen to the stay at home order? If you're saying, I can't do that because I can't be around people. That's not true. You have a phone. You have the internet. You have a computer. Maybe you have both. Maybe you have one or the other, but you have one of those. I'm guessing you have, well, you have to have one or the other. You're not watching this. You know, I, I called my neighbor, uh, Betty. She's a pretty sick woman, uh, not very healthy. She's older. And I talked to her. And I was the first person that talked to her since all of this started. She, she went into complete isolation because she's sickly. And when I talked to her, she said, and it's, it's absolutely true. She said, if I catch this thing, I will die. And I said, yeah, yeah, I know. That's why I was hoping you're all right. That's why I was partly was why I was calling. No one else had reached out to her. No one else had offered to go to the store. No one else, not even her family, had called to make sure she was even still alive. And I bet you that you have some Bettys in your life. And if you don't, shame on you. Because that's the kind of people that Jesus said we have to be caring for. 
And look, I'm not doing this stuff because I'm a pastor. I'm doing this stuff because I'm a Christian. But it's been cool. I've been having Jesus conversations with Betty for years. But this week when I talked to her, she said, hey, Brian, you know what? When, when this health thing clears up uh, and it gets a little bit warmer, I want to get baptized. Can you baptize me? Yes, I can. So when it gets a little bit warmer, uh, I'm going to grab Bethany. I'm going to grab the kids, grab a couple other Christian friends that I know she has. We're going to go on down to the river, and we're going to baptize Betty. Acts 1.8 says, You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Who's in your Jerusalem that you're ministering to? The people close by you, right around you. Who have you been calling to check on, to pray with, to encourage with the word? Who who have you been calling? What neighbor have you been talking to on their porch, sharing the gospel with? Who's the least of these that Jesus talked about that are in your life? Who are the isolated ones, the really isolated ones that you're reaching out to? And look, you've got your Jerusalem and your Judea and your ends of the earth on the internet. It's on Facebook and all the social media. And if you don't do social media, maybe it's time to do social media. I, look, I don't like social media much. I do my best up to the, up to the coronavirus thing. I've done my best to stay off of it because it just doesn't do me any good. But in this time, in this situation, I'm, there, I'm on social media a lot. If you haven't seen my 15 dozen videos of my face. Because that's where people are. If you don't do social media right now, maybe it's time. Maybe it's time to start. In fact, I would say unless God tells you otherwise, you've got a whole world of people who are scared, worried, and looking for somebody to share hope with them. So why aren't you? And I know some of you are like, that's not my thing. I don't know how to do it. I'm not part of that culture. Well, that's what Samaria is. When, when Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, Samaria was, it was a culture and a people that were not like them. That were outside their comfort zone. That were people that they didn't completely able, weren't able to completely connect to. I, had, I was watching one pastor this week and he was saying, you know, you need to be getting into social media. And, and you know, he was talking to pastors. He's like, pastors, you need to get on TikTok. <sighs> I don't, I don't want to get on TikTok. TikTok is what the, my kids do and it's silly and mildly annoying. But that's where, <sighs> that's the big social media that all the younger people are on right now. 
Maybe I need to get a TikTok. I don't really want to. I don't really care to. But if that's where people are that need Jesus, then maybe that's where I need to go. Also, you know what? Social media is where 90% of your church family is right now. So if you're missing your church family, that's where you can find them. And others of you, it might be a switch. Social media might be your Jerusalem because you're there all the time. And your Samaria will be walking out your front door and going across the street and checking on your neighbor. Be a witness. They need encouraged. They need help. They need given hope too. Are you following Jesus' commands? It is time, church, to repent of not being witnesses for Christ. It is time to repent of those things that defile our heart. It is time to let God shine his light on us that we might repent, that we might clear out the temple so that we can become the bride in these days. Are you following Christ's commands, making disciples? I'm just wondering, could maybe the reason that God has taken away the church building from us right now, and I'm not just saying us, I'm saying could the reason that God is taking the church building away from our country right now and around the world right now, could part of that be because we haven't been making disciples the way we're supposed to? Could it be that he said, I gave you all these resources. I gave you, I gave you all of, of these people with gifts and you all put it into a building instead of to the lost. And, and, and you all gathered together and got everybody together, but you never went out and made disciples. I don't know, but I'm, I'm just wondering if maybe the reason God took the church building away from the world right now is because we weren't making disciples the way we were supposed to. We weren't following his commands. Could maybe the reason that God has taken the church building away from the church in America is because we've been using the buildings and the church as an organization as a crutch that we, we haven't, we've used it as a crutch so that we don't have to go out and invest in people and pour our lives into people and make disciples the way that we we're really supposed to. And we just said, okay, we're gonna create a whole bunch of program, programs and hopefully people will come to us and, and we can just use that. And could it be that maybe we started it with good intentions, but then it became a crutch and we've used that crutch so long now that we've become weak because we haven't been using those muscles. Could it be that we've been lazy letting the church as an organization with all of its programs do the work of disciple making that was never some supposed to be a program, but it was supposed to be a one-on-one -on -one relationship 
with other people, one, with one another. And we've used it as an excuse as to the reason that we're not doing it ourselves. Well, the church can do it. Well, we, we've got this great program that we can do and we'll just bring everybody here. And so God took that excuse away and is saying, okay, now you have to do it. And God's saying, the organization and programs have become more important to you than I am. It's kind of become an idol. So I'll take it away. A couple of months back, we talked about the churches in Revelation. That Jesus said in chapter 2, to one of the churches, I know all the things you do. I've seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You, you've examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. You've discovered they're liars. You, you've patiently suffered for me without quitting. But I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you've fallen. Turn back to me and do the work you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove the, your lampstand from its place among the churches. He says, if you don't repent, I will come and I will remove the lampstand from its place among the churches. And we said that the lampstand there represents the church. I am praying that what this is, is God, that I'm praying that Jesus didn't remove the lampstand. But could it be that Jesus removed the lampstand at least for a season to say, you've got to wake up and start following me seriously and repent and clean out all this stuff that is defiling you and really start following my commands. You've really start to focus in on your heart, the temple, and, and cleaning out the evil thoughts and sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. That I'm gonna remove the lampstand, and if you don't do that, you're not going to get it back. You've got to repent and come back to your first love right now. You've got to repent and start loving each other, really loving each other. You've got to repent and turn back to the works you, you, you did at first. You have to repent and be about my mission and be about my gospel you have to repent and really care for and reach out and love the least of these. Because if not, I will remove your lampstand. We need to cry out to Jesus because in this time in churches all around the world, it seems to me that Jesus has removed the lampstand. 
And if we don't cry out, we might not get it back. He says, if you don't repent, I will remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. And if we've defiled ourselves and aren't loving God the way we should, if we've defiled ourselves and aren't loving one another the way we should, if we've defiled ourselves and aren't caring for the least of these, if we've defiled ourselves and not followed his command to make disciples and teach them and baptize them and be witnesses, if we don't repent, he says, I will remove my lampstand. And I'm praying that that's not what this is. I am hoping and praying to God that this is just a time of discipline where he says, I'm gonna remove your lampstand just a little bit. And my goodness, he, he's still, we still have the church because we're still all together. We, we still can all pray together. We, uh, online, we can still all study the word together. Online, we can still interact with each other. We, we can still call one another. We, this church is still there, just the building is gone. I'm, I'm just wondering if Jesus has maybe removed the lampstand a little bit to say, you have to repent because if not, I can take this whole thing away. Today, we, we started by talking about Jesus riding on a donkey, but someday soon, Jesus will be coming and he'll be riding on a horse. In Revelation chapter 19, in verses 11 to 16, he said, then I saw heaven opened and a white horse was standing there. Its rider was named Faithful and True for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. His eyes were like flames of fire and on his head were many crowns. A name was written on him that no one understood except for himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood and his title was the word of God. In the beginning was the word of God. He was the word of God. The armies of heaven dressed in the finest of pure white linen followed him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will release the fierce wrath of God, the almighty, like juice flowing from a wine press. On his robe at his thigh was written this title, King of all kings and Lord of all lords. And when he comes, when he's not riding on a donkey, but when he's riding on a horse, he will separate those that are his and those that are not. Those that are his bride and those that are not. And part of becoming the bride means cleaning out the temple of our hearts and choosing Jesus, who is rich in love, slow to anger and full of grace. Matthew 13, 24 to 30, as we close, says another parable he put forth to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares like weeds among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, sir, 
did you not sow good seed in your field? How does it have tares? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. His servant said, do you, do you want us to go and gather them up? He said, no. Lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of the harvest, I will say to my reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them into bundles and burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. The real thing and the imitation are going to grow together until he rides in on his white horse and separates them. When he comes, which one will you be? Would Jesus come into the temple of your heart right now and say, this place is a mockery? You honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. God has allowed this time that we're living in. It is time for us to wake up. It is time for us to clean out the temple. To become the bride. In these times, God is showing us his might and his power. In, in the matter of a week and a half, he basically shut down the country and the world. He is showing us his might and his power. So repent, the kingdom of God is near. Let's pray.